All right. Well, good morning, folks. It's good to be with you again and talk about apologetics, nuclear strength apologetics. And of course, we were talking about last week that the whole purpose behind apologetics is because we want people to be saved. That's the reason we do it and no other. That is the reason we do apologetics. And I mention that because, of course, the method that I'm presenting to you is extremely powerful. And there is a tendency for people when they first learn this and they realize that they can absolutely decimate their opponent's argument to, to think, well, you know, I've, I've really got something on them. I'm pretty, I'm pretty clever, aren't I? No, you've discovered the truth by God's grace. And we're here to share that. We want to share that truth with others. And that's why we do apologetics. We want to break down these, these strongholds and everything that casts an argument against the knowledge of God. We want to cast down those arguments. That's the point of apologetics. We've been talking about standards and how they affect our understanding of the evidence. And so uh, this morning I thought I would start with uh, something a little bit that may seem a little bit strange at first. If I can get my PowerPoint here. There we go. Shoes. i got to connect to the women in the audience, so shoes. And uh, measuring shoes. Suppose Jim comes along and he measures his shoe, and he says, that's convenient. That shoe is exactly 12 inches long, which is really nice because he says my, my foot is, in fact, 11 and a half inches. It ought to fit really nice right in there. That seems very sensible. And then Susie comes along and says, well, I don't know what you're talking about because I measured that shoe as well, and I find that it's only 10 inches long. And uh, so they're, they're debating about the length of this shoe back and forth. He said, well, no, it has to, it has to, you know, because my foot fits in it and I know my foot is 11 and a half inches and so on. It's got to be 12 inches long and they, you know, they keep passing back. It's the same shoe and they pass it back and forth and every time Jim measures it, it's 12 inches and every time Susie measures, measures it, it's 10 inches. And so finally it occurs to them to put their rulers next to each other and there's Susie's ruler and there's Jim's ruler. Ah, okay, that's why they're getting a different answer. And of course Susie says, I got it. See, the reason you're getting the wrong answer is because your ruler is too short. And, and Jim, of course, says, no, wait, wait a minute, the reason you're getting the wrong answer is because your ruler is too long. Now, how is it that most people would attempt to settle this debate? And the answer is they would find more shoes. They'd say, well, let, let me show you this other shoe and see how it's 12 inches. No, it's 10 inches. And Well, let me show you this other one and see how it... You see how that's not going to actually settle the debate? Because the debate really isn't about shoes. It's about rulers. It's about how we measure lengths, you see. And so the way to resolve the debate is not simply to throw in more shoes. It's to evaluate the standard by which we measure those shoes. That's really what the debate is about, and it's the same way with worldviews. People think that the way you solve a worldview issue is you throw in more evidence, right? If, if I just bring in more evidence, and, and then, you know, the creationist brings in fossil evidence and genetics and so on, and then he's very frustrated because no matter what evidence he presents, the evolutionist measures it the wrong way. He evaluates it in an incorrect fashion, and there's that frustration because the evolutionist equally well thinks the evidence supports his position, and he's frustrated that the creationist doesn't interpret it in the right fashion because that's not really, the debate really isn't about evidence, it's about worldviews. It's about how evidence ought to be interpreted. We saw that we really all have the same evidence, the same facts, the same access to the same fossils and so on. We, we do science the same way, but we, we interpret it differently because we have different worldviews, which consists of your presuppositions. Your presuppositions are your most basic beliefs about reality. They're the rules that you use to interpret the evidence. 
And my ultimate presupposition is the Bible is true. It really is the word of God. It's what it claims to be. And then I have secondary presuppositions that follow from that. Because I know from the Bible that God made my senses. I know that my senses are basically reliable. And so I can use my senses to probe the universe and, and understand things about that. So how is it that we settle a debate when the debate is about not evidence but presuppositions? And all religious debates are about presuppositions. They're not really about the evidence. And, and when I say that, people think, well, well, good, I can forget about the evidence. That's not what I said, though. The evidence is relevant. We'll, in, a, in a later session, we'll come back and talk about what is the appropriate use of evidence in a worldview debate. There is an appropriate place for it. But my, my point is you can't just throw more evidence at people and expect them to change their worldview because the worldview tells you what to make of the evidence. And so how is it then that we settle this debate? How do we demonstrate that biblical presuppositions are the correct presuppositions with which to interpret the evidence? And I suggested to you the answer last week. We didn't get into it in depth, but I said that biblical presuppositions make knowledge possible. And secular presuppositions don't. And that's very important because both creationists and evolutionists think that they have knowledge, and they do have knowledge of some things, right? But in order for that, in order for us to have knowledge, the Christian worldview would have to be true. And I know that's the case. The Bible tells me that as a Christian, I recognize that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want to begin to know anything. It starts with God and His, the fact that He has given us some of his knowledge. He's given us truth in various means. And in Colossians 2, 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are deposited in Christ and no other. And so you see, in order for us to know anything, we have to, it has to be by God's revelation to us. When we're, when we're um, reasoning with people and we're having a conversation because we want them to be saved and they have some misconceptions, they, they're believing some things that are not true and we're trying to teach them the truth we need to recognize something about the nature of truth and something about the nature of man because we're dealing with a human being here. And so we need to know something about human beings and we need to know something about truth. Now, the nature of truth is this. Truth is that which corresponds to the mind of God. Truth is that which corresponds to the mind of God. Something is true if it's something God would say. If it's something God believes, then it's true. That's the nature of truth. God's mind determines what is true. And that's a little difficult for us because our minds don't work that way. Our minds discover in many cases what is true. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes our minds fail to discover what is true. God's mind isn't like that. God's mind is the source of all truth. That's the nature of truth. It might surprise you to learn that that in uh, secular philosophy there are at least seven different theories of truth. Isn't that interesting? Secularists can't even agree on what truth is or how to define it. And, you know, there's the correspondence theory of truth and there's the coherence theory of truth, all these different theories of truth. And all of them, at some point, are self-defeating. They, they, they don't work. They will not give you a reasonable definition of truth that allows you to actually know what is true. Isn't that interesting? But uh, this one will. Truth is that which corresponds to the mind of God. And we receive truth by revelation from God. God has given us some of his knowledge by his, by his graciousness. He has given us some of his truth. And he's done that in more than one way, but it's all, it's all revelation. One way, of course, is he's given us his word, and that is the propositional revelation, infallible, inerrant revelation. That's the one we really want to stand on. But he's given us revelation in other ways, too. Some of it is hardwired into us. You are born already knowing some things. 
Isn't that interesting? I can prove that. I can prove that you are born already knowing at least some things. And that's kind of fascinating. Maybe we'll do that in a, a later session. But uh, God has hardwired some truth into us. He's given us his word, of course. He's given us reliable senses, and we know they're reliable because we find that in his word, right? So we can. We, that means we can learn some things about the universe. So even when we learn things by observation and experimentation, that's still God's revelation to us. It's just, uh, you know, God, God ordains not only the ends, but also the means by which we obtain truth. So that's the nature of truth. It's what corresponds to the mind of God. And then we need to know something about the nature of man. Man is made in God's image and has been given revelation from God. So we're made in God's image, and as such, we have, at least in, in a limited way, an ability to think in a way that's consistent with his character. God's mind's infinite, ours isn't, but we can at least think in a way that is consistent with his, with his character. We, we have that ability. We're, we're able to be rational. We don't always exercise that uh, gift, but we do have that capacity. Man is made in God's image and has been given some knowledge. Okay, so we all know some things because God has allowed us to know some things. He's given us some revelation. But man suppresses that truth and righteousness. That's key. All human beings have some knowledge that has been given to them by God. Included in that knowledge is knowledge of God himself. All human beings know who God is to some extent. That's not to say they know everything about God, obviously, or he, we, the Bible would have been unnecessary. But nonetheless, the, the, the fact that God exists, some of his eternal attributes and so on are known by human beings. That's one of those things God has hardwired into us. But man suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. He denies that. Why is that? Romans 1 tells us. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So you see, God is angry at human beings because we have rebelled against him. We have violated his word. We have violated his law. And as a result, he's angry. Now, that is an uncomfortable thought, that there is a being of infinite power who can do anything and you can't resist him and he's angry at you. That is not pleasant. And so the natural response of the unbeliever is to deny that. Isn't that the case? A lot of times when people get bad news, their first response is to deny it. The doctor tells them, I'm sorry, but you've got cancer. Are you really sure, doctor? I really don't think that's the case. That can't be true. That's our tendency, isn't it? To deny things that are uncomfortable to us. And so human beings deny that they're made in God's image. They deny that all truth comes from God to them. And they make up other belief systems to protect them from a God that they do not want to believe in. Because that God is scary. You know, the Israelites, when they were coming out of Egypt, and of course uh, God took Moses up to Mount Sinai and revealed the Ten Commandments and so on, gave him a lot of information and what did the Israelites do in that time? They built a golden calf, right? And worshipped that God. You see, because that's a much more comfortable God. The thing you need to know about a calf is that that becomes a very powerful animal. It becomes a bull. And a bull is a powerful animal. That's, yeah, that's God-like, right? But the pro you see, the thing about a bull is it's tame. If you, if you, I mean, if you raise it in an environment around human beings, you can get it to do, you can get it to work your fields and so on. It's a God that they can control. You see, the biblical God is not one you can control. He's sovereign. He does what he wants. And so we don't, we, in, our, in our sinful nature, we don't like that. Now, this is something you must keep in mind whenever you're dialoguing with someone who has rejected the Christian worldview. That person, one, 
knows the biblical God. And two, he doesn't want to know the biblical God. He's rebelling against him. And apart from God's grace, he'll never come to know God. But nonetheless, God can use our arguments to kind of tear down those walls. You see, when I'm doing apologetics, what I'm trying to do, ultimately, my my goal there is to expose the unbeliever's suppressed knowledge of God. I'm trying to show him that he really does know who God is. And then, of course, I'm going to present the gospel to him as well and say, actually, that God who's, I can understand why you're afraid of that God. It's a, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, right? That's terrifying. But uh, he's willing to forgive you. And that's awesome. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. God has shown it to them. You're dealing with someone who already knows God and is suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. And that is why uh, atheists or anyone else, for that matter, who denies Christianity, sometimes they will become very emotional when you start tearing down those walls. Because they emotionally are motivated to not want to accept the Christian worldview. You need to keep that in mind. Romans one twenty says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Paul is using a play on words there. Invisible, invisible means it can't be seen, and yet it is clearly seen, meaning that it's understood. Uh, it's a brilliant writing, actually. So we understand God's attributes because of, he's hardwired us in such a way that when we see the world, we know that it's made by God. We understand that. And we understand some of his attributes, too. Not just see, Some people, when they, when they hear this kind of presentation, they think, well, yeah, I can see that, how that would be used to prove some sort of God, but how would you use that to you know, refute um, Muslims who believe in a God or, or you know, these other religions that have gods? But you see, the Bible doesn't say it's knowledge of a God or some sort of abstract conception of deity that people know. It's God that they know including his eternal attributes, his uh, his eternal power and Godhead. So even some of the attributes of God people know, and that's hardwired into them, so that they're without excuse. Without excuse. The, the unbeliever has no excuse, and you need to remember that. That when, So you're going you're gonna to debate with this person because you want him to be saved, and you want him to receive that same knowledge of God that, that you have and be forgiven and so on. And they don't want that, and you want to tear down that, that stronghold and that's going to be uncomfortable for them. But the thing you need to remember is they're not going to have a rational argument for their position because God says they can't. There's no excuse for denying the biblical God, none. And I, uh, last week we talked about some of the things that we rely upon to have knowledge. So that's, that's really the, the thrux of the, the, um, the pivotal point of, of the apologetic method that I employ and that I encourage you to employ is that in order for us to know anything, it has to be by revelation from God and the biblical worldview would have to be true. And there are certain things that we rely upon to have knowledge. We rely upon laws of logic. We use those to reason. Even, even if you say, well, Dr. Loud, I don't even know one law of logic. Well, you do. You just, you, you might not be able to quote them. That's fine. But you use laws of logic every day. You couldn't get up in the morning without using the law of non-contradiction, right? You wake up in the morning and you say, I think I'm going to go get a shower. And you think, well, maybe, maybe I'm already in the shower. No, it doesn't occur to you, does it? Because you know if I'm here, I'm not there, and so on. You're using logic, and you use it every day at a, at a subconscious level. Or uniformity of nature, by which we believe that uh, the laws of nature are sort of consistent over time. And so if gravity worked on Monday, it'll probably work on Friday. And you all assume that. When you, when you got up this morning, you didn't brace yourself just in case gravity should send you hurtling toward the ceiling. You assume that it would pull down as it has in the past. And that makes sense in the Christian worldview because God, you see, upholds things in a consistent fashion. And likewise, laws of logic. Why are there laws of reasoning? Because God's mind determines truth. And God is 
is law-like in his character, you see. And so laws of logic reflect God's thinking. Or morality. And, and this is the one I really want you to focus on because, the, you know, that can be, uniformity of nature can be a little abstract. I get that. Laws of logic are very abstract. I can get that. But uh, absolute morality is something that people have thought about. And that's the one that, that, that I would encourage. If, if this is new to you, if you're new to presuppositional apologetics, kind of focus in on morality just to start with, and that will help you then with these other ones. Because morality, people, people have opinions about right and wrong, very strong opinions about right and wrong. Now, my point is not that unbelievers don't accept these things. My point is they do, and yet they would have no foundation for them on their own belief system. So why is it that unbelievers stand on these things? Because they do know in their heart of hearts the biblical God. They do. And so I, I, last week I mentioned the situations like this. If the unbeliever were consistent with his worldview, he couldn't have knowledge. And so he would, he would plummet. He doesn't have anything to stand on. And so what unbelievers will do is they will stand on Christian principles because they have to. And if you know something about the nature of truth, you know why they have to. Because God, all knowledge is in God. So if they're going to know anything about anything, they better stand on Christian presuppositions. That's the only place to stand. That's the only ground rationally in the universe is God's ground. People sometimes criticize presuppositionalists because we say there's no neutral ground. And there is no neutral ground. But then they say, but you're telling me there's no common ground? No, there is common ground. It's just not neutral. It belongs to God. Unbelievers stand on the same ground that believers stand on, you see. But then, of course, because man suppresses that truth and unrighteousness, he denies it. He says, oh, no, the laws of logic, that's not a Christian presupposition. That's what I want to focus in on today, then, is showing you how these three areas of knowledge really do stem from God's word and that there's no way you can account for these things apart from God's word and yet everyone believes in those things. It's you're going to expose the suppressed knowledge of God that all unbelievers have. And let's start with morality, absolute morality. By absolute, I mean that it's the same for all of us. It's objective, right? It's not like, you know, what's right for me is wrong for you or vice versa. I mean, I understand that there are some nuances there, but basically if you know, it's wrong for me to murder, it's wrong for you to murder. It's wrong for anyone to murder. We, we understand that. Uh, it's absolute. It's, it's the same for all of us. It doesn't change with time, right? Now, if God created us, then that would make sense, right? Because he's got the right to make the rules and he'll hold us accountable for our actions. And so I have a very good reason to behave according to God's law because judgment is coming and I'm going to have to stand before the throne of God and I will answer to his law, and granted, of course, in myself, I would have to plead guilty. It's only by Christ's actions that, that I can say, well, that, that sin's been paid for. But we understand that, that we have a reason to behave according to God's law. And, of course, it's the same for everyone because we're all made in God's image. And, and God is sovereign over all of us. And so, yeah, of course, there's going to be an absolute moral code. If Adam's in your past, you have absolutes from God, God makes the rules. If ape is in your past, if you're just rearranged pawn scum, then... Why would there be an absolute set of rules that you are obligated to obey, right? If we're just chemistry, chemistry just does what chemistry does. There's no right or wrong about it. And so the concept of right and wrong wouldn't make any sense. Morality could be nothing but relative in an evolutionary worldview. Now, some people might say that's right. Morality is relative. You get to make up your own moral code. I get to make up my own moral code, right? But you see, they can't live by that standard. In fact, if I, were, if I were to challenge a moral relativist and say, hypothetically, if I were to pull out my Glock and point it at you, can you give me a reason why I shouldn't pull the trigger? Go ahead, make my day. Now, what's he going to say? 
If he says, if he says, well, you can't, you can't do that. There's this, that would be wrong. Both, that's wrong for everybody. Well, then he's made my day, right? Because he's, he's demonstrated that morality is absolute. On the other hand, if he says, well, yeah, I guess I can't think of a reason, then I pull the trigger and I win the debate that way, you see. There's no laws of logic in an evolutionary worldview, so as far as I can tell, if the Bible's not true, there's no reason why you couldn't win a debate by simply shooting your opponent. Now, I don't hold to that because I know the Bible's true, but you see my point. Even the idea that, you know, well, I have my own moral code and you have your own moral code, and therefore you can't go around telling other people what not to do. And when they say you can't go around telling other people what not to do, what are they doing? They're telling other people what not to do. Yeah, you see, it's built into us to know that morality is the same. It's objective for everyone. So here's, the, here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask my unbelieving friend, how do you decide right from wrong? In fact, what do right and wrong even mean in your worldview? How do those concepts have any kind of objective meaning if you're just rearranged pawn scum? Because apart from the biblical God, morality can only be relative. Now, some people will say, well... <laughs> I know right and wrong. Everybody knows right and wrong. To which I'm going to say, well, yeah, because we're all made in God's image. Right? But my, my question is, how do you account for the existence of right and wrong? How do you define it even in your worldview? Now, what are some possible responses? Because some of you are thinking, well, surely some secularist has come up with a clever response to this. No, they haven't. And the Bible tells me they won't. Because knowledge begins with God. But let me show you some responses that people have come up with just so we can kind of dissect these. Uh, there aren't that many types of responses, really, but one type would be this. Well, Dr. Lau, you don't need the Bible, the biblical worldview, to know right and wrong. You see, good is what brings the most happiness to the most people. And a lot of atheists hold to that position. But the problem is, well, there's a lot of problems with this. Well, for one, it's arbitrary. You see, in the, in the atheistic worldview, happiness... It's just a chemical reaction in the brain of a, of a chemical accident, right? Now, why should I try to achieve that particular chemical reaction? Why should I be concerned about a chemical accident's happiness, right? If everything, if we're just rearranged bond scum, do you worry about other chemical accidents' happiness? Do you go out to a, a, a mud puddle and say, now, are you happy? I want to make sure you're happy. That doesn't even make sense, does it? You see, this is arbitrary. Happiness is just a chemical reaction in the brain. Somebody else comes along and says, no good is what brings the most pain to the most people. As shocking as that may seem, what's to make that response any better or worse than this one? You see, it's arbitrary. Why am I obligated to try and achieve a chemical reaction? That doesn't make sense. Now, some, of you might think, some of you might be thinking, though, but yeah, I mean, there's something to this because we should be concerned about the happiness of others. But you see, my point is, it's only in the Christian worldview that we should be concerned about the happiness of others. Not that that's our primary concern, but, you know, it is It is a concern. We don't want to needlessly cause people suffering. I understand that because they're made in God's image and they're valuable as a result of that, you see. So even here, the secularist is actually stealing it from the Christian worldview while denying it, right? He's saying you don't need the Bible, you don't need the biblical worldview to to know good and bad, just just do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I'm thinking, I've heard something like that somewhere before. Yeah. Hmm. I was debating a Ph.D. neurologist one time. He's an expert on the human brain, okay? And this was his response when I asked him that. How do you decide right from wrong? He said, well, the moral code is simply electrochemical impulses in the brain. There's a section of your brain. That's, that's morality. Why should I follow it then, Right? If it's, if it's just chemistry going on in my brain, why am I obligated to follow the suggestions of that chemistry? 
I've got chemistry going on in my stomach. Maybe I should use my indigestion to tell me right from wrong. Right? If it's just, I mean, there's no, there's no moral impetus here. Some people say, well, laws of morality are conventions adopted for the benefit of society. Well, we need, we need moral laws, Dr. Lau. Otherwise, people would go around acting, you want to say, what, like animals? Because in the evolutionary world, isn't that what we are? Why would that be a problem? Why would it be a problem for animals to act like animals? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, does it? And even here, how do you decide what benefits society? Benefit already presupposes a standard of goodness, doesn't it? And, of course, there have been some people who have decided that the way to benefit their society is to exterminate Jews, for example. The Nazis thought that that would improve their society. Now, I, I hope we wouldn't think that that's a positive thing. You see, a convention is something that we all agree to it, and it sort of works. And so if moral laws were just conventions, then we could agree to different moral laws, and we could say, okay, it's, it's fine to kill this ethnic group, for example. But that wouldn't make it right, would it? Not at all. This, so this definition breaks down as well. None of these responses are, are rational. They'll, people will say good is what achieve, achieves a particular end, or, or um, but then who decides what that end should be? Or, or the moral code is simply, it's just chemistry going on, but if it's chemistry, why should I follow it? You see, none of these responses make any sense. And just to, to drill things home, consider an evolutionist who is outraged at seeing a violent murder on television. He says, I can't believe that man shot that little girl. That's terrible. He should go to jail. Now, I'm glad he's angry, but my point is, why should he be angry if his worldview were true? Okay, if he's an evolutionist, he thinks people are just animals that have evolved from the slime and so on. Now, why should he be concerned about what one animal does to another animal? Right? The lion goes out and kills another lion. You don't put the lion in jail and say, oh, you better think about what you did. That was wrong. Animals just do what animals do. There's no right or wrong about it. In his view, it's just a chem one chemical accident getting rid of another chemical accident. He's getting angry at chemistry, and that doesn't make any sense. You put the baking soda and the vinegar together, right, and it fizzes up. You don't get angry at it and say, bad baking soda. You shouldn't have reacted that way. <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense. Chemistry just does what chemistry does. And so you see, what this, what this anger shows, it reveals his suppressed knowledge of God. It shows that in his heart of hearts, he does know that people are made in the image of God and therefore deserving of dignity and respect and should not be murdered, for example. Morality. What about uh, uniformity in nature? This one's my personal favorite because it's what makes science possible. I'm a scientist, and so I tend to kind of focus in on this one a lot. Uh, it's, very, it's a very powerful illustration of the fact that knowledge uh, depends on God. Uniformity of nature is this idea that there are patterns in nature that there's an underlying orderliness in nature due to the fact that God upholds the universe in a uniform fashion for our benefit. He doesn't, he's not required to do that, but he, he does it most of the time that way for our benefit. He can do a miracle. That's no problem, but miracles are by definition rare. For the most part, God upholds the universe in a consistent way so that we can probe it and understand it, and he made our minds to go along with the universe. And these, this, these, these principles are what make science possible. All science is predicated on the assumption that God upholds the universe in a consistent way, and therefore there are patterns to be discovered. And science is all about discovering patterns in nature. That's what it's about. Science would make no sense if the universe really were chance, just an accident. You would not expect to find any patterns out there. Why would you expect to find patterns in an accident? It doesn't make sense. All technology is based on, on this principle. I'm going to come back to that. But... Uh, what this uniformity means, it has a number of different aspects to it. One aspect of it is that laws of nature are consistent over space. 
And so when I came into this room for the first time, and I had never been here before, it didn't occur to me to think, boy, I hope gravity works in this room. Right? I mean, I'd never been here before. I'd never experienced this room before I was here the first time. And yet it didn't occur to me to think, well, yeah, I hope gravity, because I have never been there. I don't know that gravity will work there. No, I expect gravity will work here as it does elsewhere, okay? And even in space, people think there's no gravity in space. It's just, no, it just it radiates away from the, the body. It's weaker and, and so on. But the laws of nature are the same here as they are where I live, and they're the same in the Andromeda galaxy or Mars or where, wherever because God upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. And so, of course, the laws of nature are going to be the same everywhere. Conditions might be very different. It's very hot in the core of the sun. It's very cold on Pluto. But the same laws of nature work there because God upholds the universe in a consistent way for our benefit. If you think about it, all technology relies on this presupposition, this biblical presupposition. The fact that your car works, you turn on the key and it starts up and so on, that relies on physics and chemistry being consistent over time. Have you ever had your car not work? You go to start it, ooh, it doesn't work. I've had that happen a couple times. Now, does it occur to you, well, I guess the laws of physics and chemistry changed. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a chance universe. Frankly, I'm surprised it worked this long. <laughs> that probably doesn't occur to you because you know the laws of physics are the same because God upholds the universe in a consistent way. And so you assume, if your car doesn't start, you assume that conditions have changed. Maybe the battery's dead this time or maybe there's a bad solenoid in the starter or what have you. It doesn't occur to you to think that the laws of nature changed. God upholds the universe in a consistent way for our benefit. So it's not just consistent over space, but also over time. We expect that gravity will work in the future as it has in the past. Because God is beyond time. And he's told us that he will uphold things in a consistent way. In Genesis 8.22, for example, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. God is telling us that the basic cycles of nature will be in the future as they have been in the past, as long as the earth remains. So when Judgment Day comes, all bets are off. But until then, uh, the universe will continue to operate in a law-like fashion. And we know that because we have a promise from God. Now, an evolutionist has no basis for the uniformity of nature on his own worldview. Okay, if evolution really were true, if the universe was chance, big bang, he'd have no reason to expect that there ought to be this underlying uniformity in nature. But he has to assume it in practice. Because you couldn't get out of bed without assuming uniformity. You couldn't brush your teeth without assuming uniformity, right? Because you, when you, you, know, you squeeze the toothpaste, you assume that if you squeeze it, it'll come out the top, as it has in the past. Every time you rely on past experience as a basis for what is likely to happen in the future, you are relying on uniformity. You're, and, and the only reason you have to assume that is because God upholds the future like the past. Because he's timeless. He's beyond time, Okay. But you don't have any reason to assume that apart from the Christian worldview. Every step you take presupposes uniformity. As your momentum carries you forward, you expect that gravity will pull down and so on and so forth. And uh, the evolutionist doesn't have any reason to expect that, but we do. You see, in terms of our present knowledge, we have 
senses that have been made by God and therefore are reliable. And so we can know something about the present because of, because of God's word, of course. And we have a memory that's reliable that we can remember the past. But, but none of us have experienced the future. I trust that none of you are time travelers and have experienced the future and have jumped back because you really wanted to see this particular talk. Um, n- probably not, right? Only God has knowledge of the future because he's there, as it were, he, and, and all knowledge is in him anyway, and he, he determines the future, right? So um, it's only by God's knowledge that we could know something about the future. Now, I do know that the sun will rise tomorrow. It might be cloudy and we might not see it, but it will rise. And I know that only because God has promised in his word that the future will be like the past. That's the only, that's the only rational basis for expecting the sun to rise tomorrow. And you might say, surely some secularists have figured out that there's some other explanation. They haven't. It might interest you to know that the secular philosopher David Hume was reduced to utter skepticism on this very issue. He, he, he knew somehow that the sun would rise tomorrow, but he couldn't explain how he knew it. And he specialized in that, in, in epistemology, the study of knowledge, how we know what we know. And yet he could not come up with a reason how, apart from the Christian worldview, you could know that the sun will rise tomorrow, something that everybody assumes. What are some possible responses to this? Again, there won't be a rational one, but some people will say, well, everybody knows that the future will be like the past. Everybody knows the sun will rise tomorrow, to which I'm going to say, yeah, because we're made in the image of God. And God's hardwired that into us to know that he upholds things in a consistent fashion. That's one of those things that even babies are born knowing because a baby burns his hand on the candle. Ooh, he doesn't reach for it again because he assumes if he touches it again, it will hurt again. And yet, on a chance of universe, there's no reason to expect that, right? Next time he burns his candle, hand on the candle, it might be very enjoyable. It's a chance of universe. But no, God upholds things in a consistent way. If you do the same thing over, you're going to get the same result. So yes, everybody knows it because we've been made in the image of God. My question is, how do you know it on your own worldview? And there's no answer for that, unless you're a Christian. Well, the inherent properties of matter cause it to behave in a uniform way. Those of you that have listened to the famous Bonson-Stein debate, that was the way the atheist Gordon Stein answered that question. He says the inherent property, matter is just such that it behaves uniformly. But then I'm going to ask, how do you know? <laughs> how do you know? Uh, because, frankly, all the things that we've learned, we don't know all the inherent properties of matter anyway, right? Because we don't, we understand some things about matter because of the methods of science, but science assumes uniformity in nature. The very thing I'm asking him to justify and so he's, he's begged the question. He's assuming uniformity so that he can have science, so that he can say that matter behaves this way, and therefore it always will. But that assumes uniformity, the very thing I'm asking him to prove. One of the most common responses is this one. I'm asking the question, how do you know that the future will be like the past in terms of how the laws of nature work? And the most common response is, well, it's always been that way. Now, if you think about that, that is... A fallacy. It's the fallacy of begging the question. It's a fallacy of assuming the thing that you're trying to prove. You see, any time we use past experience as a basis for what is likely to happen in the future, we're assuming uniformity, that God upholds the future like the past. But if you ask an, unbel- an unbeliever, you say, how do you know that the future will be like the past? He says, well, in the past, there's always been uniformity. Therefore, in the future, there will be. What's he assuming? He's assuming the future will be like the past. He's assuming the very thing I'm asking them to prove. And for some reason, it's very hard for people to get that. And so I want to, I want to hit this a little bit more. If some of you already got it, great. I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming when I first heard this, I kind of thought, well, yeah, that kind of does answer it, but it, it doesn't because it begs the question. You see, it is so built into us to assume that the future will be like the past 
that we can use past experience as a basis for future success, that when we're asked to justify that principle, we tend to assume it even in justifying it, and that's what the person has done here. I have an illustration I want to use to try and uh, illustrate this. I don't know if this will make it better or worse, but in any case, um, my question is, how do you know the future will be like the past? And he says, well, in the past, the future was like the past, right? Past futures were like past pasts, and we know that now because that's now all in our past, and we can remember it, right? So in in the past, there's been uniformity. Therefore, in the future, the future will be like the past. But when he says, therefore, what's he assuming? That the future will be like the past, the very question that I am asking him to justify. And so he's arbitrarily assumed the very thing he's trying to prove, and that's the fallacy of begging the question. Um, If you get that, great. I guarantee you, you will have to explain that to people. Yeah, so really think that through and make sure you've got it because unbelievers rely on, everybody relies on this principle so deeply it doesn't occur to us to try and justify it. But logically, it must be justified. My point is it's only in the Christian worldview that you can know that the future will be like the past in terms of how the laws of nature work. And by the way, it'd be absurd to apply that to other things, right? You can't just arbitrarily assume that something will be in the future as it has been in the past because God's only promised us that the cycles of nature will be in the future as they have been in the past. You, you can't assume other things, right? Otherwise, you could, you could say, well, I'm immortal. You say, well, how do you know you're immortal? Well, I've never died before, right? <laughs> it doesn't work, you see. How do you know laws of nature are not like that, that they, that they work for a while and then they stop? The unbeliever has no basis for assuming that on his own worldview, but we do because of the knowledge of God. Let's talk briefly then about laws of logic. Laws of logic are the reflection of the way God thinks and the way he expects us to think. And we all rely on on laws of logic. And they stem from God's nature. Like the law of non-contradiction, which says you can't have A and not A at the same time and in the same relationship, right? If I said my car's in the parking lot and it's not in the parking lot, you wouldn't rush out to see a car that's there and not there. You would assume that I'm mistaken and you'd be right. Because you see, the law of non-contradiction stems from God's nature. Why is it that two contradictory statements cannot both be true? Because God doesn't deny himself. The Bible tells us that. He can't deny himself. He's, God is internally consistent, and we know that all truth is in God, all knowledge is in him. Therefore, truth will be internally consistent. Laws of logic are conceptual, right? They're things that we think about. They're not material. They're not made up of atoms. You can't accidentally stub your toe on a law of logic, or swallow one and say, oh, I, I ate a law of logic last night. It's not sitting well. Man, that doesn't, no, they're not material, right? They're, and, and that makes sense because God's thoughts are immaterial, as all thoughts are. Laws of logic are universal, meaning they apply everywhere, right? It's not like laws of logic work here, but in Europe, contradictions can be true. Now, that wouldn't make sense, right? And again, when you, when you go to a new location, do you think, well, I hope laws of logic work here? Because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to use reasoning and so on. When the astronauts landed on the moon, I don't think it occurred to them to think, boy, I hope laws of logic work on the moon because we're going to have to reason to get our way back. And if the principles of reasoning are different here, we're stuck. That didn't occur to them. They're universal. And why are they universal? Because God's mind is, God's omnipresent. His mind governs the whole universe, you see. Laws of logic are invariant, meaning they don't change with time. And that would have to be the case because... Well, because God doesn't change with time. But we, we understand that. Laws of logic work the same on Fridays as on Mondays, right? We understand that. And that's because God doesn't change. And so his way of thinking is consistent over time. And they're exceptionless because...
God is sovereign over everything. There's no truth that escapes his mind. And so you see, all these properties that laws of logic have only make sense in the Christian worldview. We would expect to have laws of logic because there's a lawgiver. They're they're rooted in his nature, and therefore they will be conceptual, universal, invariant, exceptionless. But the secularist has no basis for laws of logic, nor why they should have those properties, nor how he could possibly know that they have those properties. And so imagine the naturalist who believes nature is all that there is, everything that exists is matter and energy, and he says, uh, you know, but he tries to use logic to prove his position. But you see, here's the problem. If, na- if matter and energy are the only things that exist, he can't use logic because logic is not matter or energy, you see. And so the naturalist position is inherently irrational. You can't have laws of logic if the only things that exist are matter and energy. And so again, the naturalist is trying to use that, which um, he can't have on his own position to try and refute the Christian position on which he's inherently standing. What are some possible responses to this? There aren't very many. Uh, people say, well, laws of logic are material. They're the chemical reactions in the brain. Well, the problem is that with that is if they're material, then they're not laws, first of all. Secondly, my brain is different from your brain. I've got different chemical reactions in mine. Does that mean I have different laws of logic than you have? Would it be okay for me to contradict myself? No, they, w- they wouldn't be universal in that sense. Somebody says, laws of logic are descriptions of how the brain thinks. When I first heard this one, it kind of stumped me because it's close to the truth. Laws of logic are descriptions of how God thinks. But they're not just descriptions of how you think. Because, you see, if laws of logic were simply descriptions of how you think, you could never violate one. Because you always think the way that you think. Isn't that right? If laws of logic were simply descriptions of how the brain thinks, why would we need laws of logic to correct the way that the brain thinks? Laws of logic are conventions. We agree to them and they work. That's, that's how, you know, there are things that we all agree on. Well, if they're conventions, something that is adopted by a particular culture, like driving on the right side of the road, that's a convention. We all agree to it and it works. Are laws of logic like that? If they were, then, hey, you go to Australia, you drive on the left side of the road. So different cultures could have different laws of logic. And so you can say, welcome to Australia. Feel free to contradict yourself here because here contradictions are true. That wouldn't make any sense. They wouldn't be universal if they were conventional. Somebody said, well, there's property of the universe. Well, that has a lot of problems because laws of logic really aren't describing the universe. They're describing the relationship between concepts. They're not dealing with the physical universe. But also, then, of course, the question I'm going to ask is, then how do you, how do you know that? How do you know that laws of logic are universal? Have you experienced the entire universe? If you think about it, your experiences compared to the universe are very small. <laughs> Most of you have never even left this planet, and this is a relatively small planet, I assure you, in a very big cosmos. So how could you possibly know that laws of logic work on Mars or in Andromeda? Now, all astronomers assume that. But you see, if they were just a property of the universe, you could never know that. You'd have no way of knowing. How do you know they'll be the same tomorrow? You could never know that if they're a property of the universe. The universe is constantly changing. So if laws of logic merely reflected a changing universe, you'd expect them to change as well. One guy told me this. He says, well, we use them because they work. I said, that's not my question. My question is, how can you make sense of them, and how do you know that they have the properties that they have? I know they work. They work because they reflect God's thinking, and God upholds the universe, so of course they're going to work. If I came into this room and there was a Volkswagen up here on stage, I said, wow, how did that get in here? How can we make sense of this? And somebody gets in and starts it up and says, well, it works. That's not my question, right? 
That's, by the way, that's a very common fallacy. It's the fallacy of a relevant thesis. When people will give you an answer, the answer is correct, but it's not the question you're asking. Very common in, uh, in apologetic situations. So in all cases, the unbeliever has to stand on Christian ground in order to argue against Christian principles. Isn't that funny? The very principles on which he's standing, and that's not going to work out well for him, of course. And there was more I wanted to cover, but we are out of time. So I will pick it up next week. But uh, the key really is to stand on God's word and our thinking and recognize how all knowledge depends on God and his word being true. And then we can see how that makes sense of everything else in the universe. And, of course, the book I've written on this, The Ultimate Proof of Creation. And at some point, maybe we'll try and bring some of these books in here. If you don't already have it, we can uh, maybe give some of those to you. And Understanding Genesis, applying these same principles to... Uh, Christians who have compromised and are not really following God's word, the same method, they'll work on them too. Because they also know the biblical God in their heart of hearts. And they, of course, they, they, they do admit that, but they're not really following God in the way that they read his word. And then discerning truth, how to spot logical fallacies and arguments. Check us out on the web as well, icr.org. And I have a blog where I interact with people using the method that I've presented to you the last couple of weeks. And we'll pick it up again next week, and we'll talk about some of the theological issues. What does the Bible have to say about apologetic methods? And then I'll try to do the uh, probably the don't answer answer strategy next week too, which is very very effective and helpful. And I will stick around for the service. So if you want to hang out, I'd be happy to chat with you. So thank you very much.